You're listening to Proselytize. Or Proselytize. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Proselytize or Apostatize. I'm your host, Titus. My co-host, David, couldn't make it today, but I've got two very special guests on the Skype line today to have a conversation about Dow. Uh, but before we get going with that, this is your friendly reminder to subscribe and rate and review the podcast wherever you're watching or listening to it. We're also on Facebook. Just search Proselytize or Apostatize. Share it with your friends. Um, it'd be great if we could get the listener base up from six to nine. That'd be really exciting for me. Um, so if you could help me out with that. That'd be great. So uh, joining us today is Drew Sokol. He uh, was the co-host of a podcast called Hinge, which was a documentary podcast about doubt, identity, and the search for the historical Jesus. He co-hosted it with his atheist writer friend, Corey Markham. Uh, it was a, one of my favorite podcasts when it came out, Drew. It reached number one in the iTunes religion and spirituality charts. Um, and now he has his own podcast, Room for Doubt. And we're actually going to be co-releasing uh, this conversation on his podcast as well. So thanks for joining us, Drew. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks, Titus. Also joining us is Barnabas Piper. You've probably heard of him. If you haven't heard of him, you've probably heard of his dad, John Piper. If you haven't heard of John Piper, I would definitely question your salvation. Uh, but he's a speaker, a podcaster, and an author of a number of books, including Help My Unbelief, Why Doubt is Not the Enemy of Faith. Uh, you going to keep writing books until you catch up with your dad there, Barnabas? Uh, I intend to do half of that. I do intend to keep writing books. I have given up all hope of catching up with my dad. Yeah, yeah. So I put it on social media that I was going to have you on and uh, ask people if there's any questions I should ask you. And the one question someone commented, uh, th this could be controversial. I won't lie. Um, I, I don't know. It, it could be too personal. So maybe we need to edit this out. But I need to throw it at you, man. Um, how, how do you feel about grape nuts? How do I feel about grape nuts? I feel like they're basically dog food in breakfast form. Oh my word! Does your does your dad know about your feelings? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a standard conversation when I visit uh, when I visit my parents because he eats them for breakfast and occasionally lunch every day. And yeah. yes, I I marvel at his enjoyment of something that tastes so strikingly like dog food smells. Wow! Wow! You you must be a real disappointment in that area. <laughs> How would your, on a similar note, how would your dad have reacted if you'd have turned out to be like a flaming Arminian or worse yes, yet an open theist? I, I have no idea. That would make uh, that would make dinnertime conversations or holiday visits exceptionally awkward. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, yeah, thanks for coming on, man. It, it's exciting to be able to talk to you and, and to have you and Drew talk as well. Um, so, so you wrote this book about doubt a while back, and I think you had your own journey of doubt that kind of led up to writing this book. So could you kind of briefly sketch that out for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so Help My Unbelief came out, I think, in 2015, if my memory serves me correctly. Um, and it was, it really was um, 
coming out of my own, yeah, my own experience. So growing up in a, uh, in a pastor's household, um, my dad was a pastor before I was born. He retired from the pastor on my 30th birthday. So I was a pastor's kid and, a, and as an adult as well. So that was kind of my context, which means for much of my life, everything faith wise was kind of handed to me. It was, um, this is the the doctrinal structure. This is the um, this is what we believe about the Bible. This is what we we believe about Christ, and it was all very faithfully taught. But because it was so consistent, and because that was my environment for so long, um, and specifically being a pastor's kid, where there are also some external expectations on you are supposed to believe. You're not really supposed to have questions. You're, you know, there's just sort of a, a pressure to be a certain way, to believe a certain way. There was never really any room for questioning or for coming to a place of what do I believe because I have encountered the truth in a meaningful way. Um, and so I grew up as a believer, a genuine follower of Christ, but also just with with a lot of unquestioned and unsolidified beliefs that that I sort of claimed because they were handed to me as opposed to believing because I had studied, because I had wrestled through things, because, you know, I had been challenged and found them um, and found them, you know, meaningful and substantive. So went to went to Wheaton College, um, same school my parents went to was a Bible major there. And so this this continued all the way through there. And in fact, I found in retrospect that a lot of those studies, the theological studies, actually created, fed into my faith crisis in the end because they stacked up so much additional knowledge that the gap between what I knew to be true and what I claimed as true, were th that gap grew. Um, and, you know, as it... If you're somebody who is struggling to find a, a spiritual and personal identity, like many pastors' kids do, and then you have this this sort of knowledge base that differs from what you're confident in, there's just a lot of room for um, for mistakes to be made, for sins to enter into life, for you know when when people don't know what their baseline of who they are, what God intends them to be, um, they usually begin to seek it out in unhealthy places. So I just had some habits of sin that crept into my life because I wasn't confident in what God intended for me. So in my mid-20s, I went through a really significant crisis. Those patterns of of dishonesty and, and kind of presenting myself as something that I wasn't caught up to me. I was fired from a job, and that was that was the thing that precipitated the kind of collapse of this, this, what I might call a faux faith. Um, cause it forced me to confront just the pieces that were in wreckage around me that I said, well, I, I claim to believe these things, but if I had actually believed them, I probably wouldn't have lived like this. I probably yeah. wouldn't have acted in this way, been dishonest in this way. And so it started a process of probably two or three years of beginning to piece through all of that to figure out what is it that I genuinely believe about God, about God's word, about who God says he is versus what are the things that have been handed to me that I that I could espouse, that I could argue for, that I could write lengthy papers about uh, in school, but but didn't rest my identity on. Because I think that I think that is 
kind of ultimately the essence of faith is what are you planting your feet on in confidence? Like, this is identity. This is direction. This is where my hope lies. Um, and I didn't have good answers to those questions. And so that process was, was done, thankfully, with the help of wise people, um, people smarter and more educated than I was, people who cared about me deeply and wanted to see me find a place of confidence in the Lord. Um, and what came out of that was more the place where I am now, although I think as all three of us would agree, faith is definitely a process. It's not a, I don't think it's as simple as you, you believe some things and then you're just good to go till death do you part kind of thing. Um, so there is a, there's kind of a constant flux. There's a constant awareness of things we, things I'm not sure of, things I don't know, mysteries that I can't account for in a tidy manner. Um, but the grounding of who I am, what I believe is, um, I'd say is, is as solid and meaningful as it ever has been. And it was through the process of breaking down the, or really God breaking down those, those kind of, those, they weren't simplistic beliefs. They were just beliefs that weren't mine and, and helping me find the place to, these are the things that I have encountered in my relationship with Christ, in my reading of scripture, in my reading and studies of other works. And, and this is, this is what I believe where my faith rests now. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, and we'll, we'll come back to that a little later. Um, but first of all, Drew, could, could you kind of share about, about your journey with doubt and, and where that's taken you? Yeah. Well, um, my journey with doubt probably goes back to Hurricane Katrina. Um, so I'm a born and raised New Orleanian. In fact, I'm so New Orleans that I was uh, born in a dorm room at the University of New Orleans. Kind of a fun fact. But uh, when I was in college, I was a junior in college when Katrina hit. And uh, I think that experience, you know, I lost my... Um, small apartment in uptown New Orleans. My mom more, much more significantly lost her home. And for someone who's not from New Orleans, it's kind of hard to understand exactly how hard that experience hit us. Because, mm. you know, if I'm in New York right now. If you live in a place like New York, your number one source of identity tends to be your career, your accomplishments, your resume. In a lot of the country, your number one source of identity is your family, your last name. In New Orleans, your number one source of identity for the most part is that you're a New Orleanian. And we just have this deep sense of pride over where we're from and that we're all one family together. And so even if you weren't directly impacted by the storm, it had a uh, just a massive impact on you. And I think that experience made me wrestle with some of these deep questions at a much younger age than most people do. Uh, and at first that was anger towards God for allowing something tragic like that to happen, kind of wrestling with the classic question of suffering and evil. Um, but I ended up digging into scripture on my own for the first time in a very significant way and was just unbelievably compelled by the Gospels. I think, uh, you know, there's a cultural Jesus that is not at all the Jesus of the Gospels, but there's also an evangelical Jesus that is not at all the Jesus of the Gospels. You know, the Jesus I read in the Gospels says things like, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And there's a reason he says that, because he does kind of, he is kind of rough around the edges. And I was just completely smitten by him. And I would say that's the first time I uh, 
took ownership of my faith through my own process, kind of similar Barnabas to what you were describing. Um, and I ended up, I was a teacher for a little bit after school and ended up uh, feeling the call to uh, to go into vocational ministry. But shortly after seminary, I was a I was a pastor at a church in Los Angeles. And in August 2014, I was standing in front of seven, eight hundred people uh, preaching a sermon on truth, my first of three that day. And as I was making that turn in the sermon, where instead of talking about truth kind of vaguely and broadly, I was making that turn to say that Jesus is the answer in our search for truth. And uh, as I was making that turn, I just felt this wave of doubt and this wave of emotion come over me in a way I just never experienced before. Uh, Just feeling like, you know, I need to deliver these words with a lot of conviction right now and a lot of confidence. Um, And I don't think I believe it right now. Um, And so right after the sermon, I kind of pressed through. I went backstage, uh, literally threw up, um, was bawling. um, And that's not typically my personality. Uh, And then I kind of had to summon the gumption to go preach two more of the exact same sermon that day. One of them I literally threw up right before I went on stage. Uh, I'm sure you were expecting to talk about puke at uh, this time in the morning. Um, And that started a process of about six months where I really questioned whether I wanted to be in vocational ministry, what I really felt about my faith. I was starting to explore other jobs. Um, And I ended up coming to the decision that I wanted to go back into ministry, kind of reevaluated my faith. My church was incredibly patient with me. Uh, and felt enough confidence in where I was to move forward, not only as a Christian, but as a vocational minister. Uh, But over the next few years, um, you know, and towards the end of that time, I ended up doing Hinge with Corey, as you mentioned, Titus. And uh, over the course of those few years, you know, when you're a pastor and you're, you're sitting next to someone who's just been diagnosed with terminal cancer, or you're dealing with someone who's been abused in a marriage and their church uh, has very firmly not listened to them or given them the option to consider protecting themselves and exiting the situation. Uh, You're called to sit there with them and not only have words to say, but have confidence in Christ that you can share with them. And that pressure day after day, week after week, month after month, if you're kind of walking through your own doubts, becomes very hard to continue to hold up and and, and to press forward with. And so um, I ended up making the decision about a year ago that I was going to exit out of ministry completely and uh, for the long term, most likely. Uh, Because I think as I've reflected on it, a big it's it's very hard once you have so much established in a specific world all your important relationships your career you know literally everything important in your life to have the ability to be completely honest with yourself it's it's just hard because you know if you end up saying no to this thing You have to start from scratch in a lot of different areas of your life. And so because of that, last year ended up becoming an incredibly difficult year. Um, But I'm really glad I did because I feel like I'm in a position now where I can 
be completely honest with myself about how I view the Bible, how I view this thing we call a relationship with Jesus, how I view Jesus himself, and, um, you know, and, and, and just kind of be in a place where I'm, I'm almost like that 20-year-old dealing with Hurricane Katrina again back in 2005, but I'm at a place where I can be a little bit more honest in my own journey, which is why I started the room. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I've been listening to, I, I've listened to every one of your episodes on both of your podcasts. <laughs> and so I've been following this journey on hinge. It definitely seemed like you were somewhat confident that Jesus was the, the truth. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was sort of set up with, with you being the Christian with Corey being the atheist and, hearing both of your responses to different apologists and, and that sort of thing. And then when Room for Doubt started, it, it seemed like you had been sort of um, moving away from Christianity a little bit more, although um, it, it, it kind of seemed to me it, it sort of depended who you were talking to. Um, maybe you were just not trying to offend your guests. Um, but I, I am curious, though, uh, where are you right now? on the belief spectrum uh, do you call yourself a christian do you call yourself an agnostic uh, we're in 2019 no one likes to put themselves in a box or use labels um but sometimes that can be helpful i think so so i I'd just like to press you on that where are you at exactly on, on that yeah well i would hope number one on room for doubt i'm not catering to my guests in terms of having this kind of amphibian faith that adjusts to who I'm talking to. But definitely the the purpose of the Room for Doubt, it's a little bit different from this this podcast or, or probably a lot of apologetics podcasts out there. I'm trying to stir a sense of understanding. I think there's a lot of debate out there uh, where people are trying to get their own points across. I'm trying to seek out for understanding uh, Christians and agnostics to hear and of atheists and agnostics for Christians to hear and, and and for progressive Christians to hear conservative Christians, conservative Christians to hear progressive Christians. And mm -hmm. so um, it's not because I'm backing down or anything like that. Uh, it's because I'm genuinely seeking out understanding and because I don't, you know, um, I'm not uncomfortable with labels, but you uh, uh, where I am in the faith doubt spectrum is is uh, I would say perhaps a little bit different day by day if I'm being completely honest with myself. And I'm allowing myself the ability now that it's not related to my career anymore um, to not have to put a tag on myself because I think at some point you have to make a decision. Not to decide is to decide. If if you're going to keep try to sit on, you're just agnostic. Um, that's your tag. Uh, at some point, you do have to make a decision, but I'm giving myself a little bit of room not to make a decision right now. I think uh, when when I sounded much more confident uh, at the end of Hinge, uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is it was genuinely true of me. The other we were listening on Jesus. I very, very, and the same for Corey, we did not go into kind of secondary issues of the Bible and that sort of a thing. Um, like, we didn't by any means stick to an inerrant word of 
got rid of uh, posture even in Hinge or anything remotely close to that. Um, and so uh, uh, because we kept the, the, the focus a little bit more singular, it was easy to communicate confidence, but it was true of me. And, uh, you know, we won't get into the whole details of this, but, uh, you know, I went through a difficult experience with the church and in my own personal life. And I think even more significantly than that since Hinge, I removed the pastor tag from me. And that kind of gave me the ability to, I think, be a little bit more honest with myself. Whereas like when you're in it, it's hard to even see how much these forces in your life are influencing the way you think and portray yourself, even to yourself. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that you're you're sort of in that deciding space, um, but I'm curious. So right now, would you say that you are more confident that a higher power exists than that a higher power does not exist? Like if we put it on a scale. Mm. You know, oh, yeah. 10. Well, I, I would say that's actually very separate from the question, you know, do I want to be a disciple of Jesus and do I believe yeah. specifically in Christianity? I think I think the. Uh, there are too many bizarre coincidences in what we know about science for me to not believe that there is something out there. I actually hold very, very strongly to that. But that is but then from there to adopt Christianity and more specifically, maybe an entire package related to Christianity is mm-hmm. is quite a jump from that position. OK, so would you have more confidence than not that Christianity is true, but it's just becoming difficult for you to accept the church and accept being a a disciple or um, when it comes to the Jesus question are you also somewhat not confident that he is actually who he said he was according to the gospels at least yeah um I don't I don't think it's as much about not being willing to be a disciple uh, or anything like that. Um, I think there is doubt that has been stirring in me, probably going back to seminary, which would have been 2010 to 2013. I think some of the doubts really started to stir then, but I wasn't completely willing to be honest with myself. Uh, And I would say uh, if you try to connect where I am and who I am and what I believe with the word confidence related to Christianity, I think absolutely not. <laughs> I, I don't have confidence. Um, I'd love to have a strong, firm conviction. I'd love to have that. That tends to be the kind of personality I have. Uh, but I think the uh, what we're given in terms of, uh, you know, not to sound too intellectual about this because it's not who I am, but what we have in terms of the data and evidence, not only, you know, whether it's from the Bible or science or whatever you want to call it, but the data and evidence evidence we have from the church and from people's lives and experiencing the Holy Spirit, you know, because Jesus in the Upper Room Discourse and John says the strongest things about how the Holy Spirit is going to influence our lives. And when I look at all that and the whole package, I'm I'm just like, eh, really? I'm not sure. And so um, I think if I'm being honest with myself, where I am now is probably a little bit more agnostic. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. Um, I want to bring you in here, Barnabas, kind of hearing Drew's story and where he's at now and having experienced doubt yourself. How would you sort of respond to that? 
Um, I mean, my initial response is <laughs> primarily empathetic in that, you know, having especially the experience of being in a place of spiritual authority, church leadership, kind of all eyes on you. There's the expectation of of confidence. You know, you alluded to that, Drew. And um, being in that place while being uncertain is a that's a breaking point. I mean, that's that's a really difficult place to be. So <clears throat> I hear that. Um, that makes sense to me. Why? I mean, the profundity of the struggle makes sense to me. You know, you and I have I think we've arrived at different places or are arriving. Maybe is a better way to put it. Um, we're on different places if it's a spectrum or I don't know, pick a, pick your metaphor. We're not quite at the same place. Um, but I think I understand generally speaking kind of how, how it came about where that for you to land where you are. Um, I'm loath to sort of get into a here, let me try to persuade you conversation, especially with somebody who is a seminary graduate who has been a pastor. There's very little that I could say um, sort of evangelistically, so to speak, that, that you're going to go, Oh, right. I didn't (laughs) know that. Um, so I, and I think, so let me just, let me just recount what, what one of the, is that he's, he was a professor and one of the guys who was sort of mentoring and guiding me through those few years of significant kind of faith falling apart and being restructured, rebuilt for me, there was a point where I was coming from the place of I have read the Bible, I don't know, a dozen times at that point. I have studied the Bible. I have, I mean, the, everything everything I just said that you know, I kind of knew the same things. Um, and at one point during our conversations, I was just sort of rattling off the answers that I knew he expected to hear because that's what pastor's kids do. We just, we give the right answers. Um, either that or we tell you to, you know, go to hell or something like that. <laughs> it's kind of one or the other. We either say, go away, I don't want any part in you, or um, or we give the right answers. And so I was just giving the right answers, and he just sort of called time out and, and thought for a minute and just said, I think the thing that you need to do is to figure out who Jesus is, which is, you know, it's a broad sweeping statement, but he just... Uh, he said, why don't we stop these questions, these sort of accountability, dealing with where you're at kind of questions. He said, just take a, an empty notebook and your Bible and just start reading through the Gospels. Try to set aside every Sunday school lesson you've ever had. Try to set aside every message or sermon you've ever taught, every, every paper you've ever written, and try to engage the Jesus on the page for for as much the first time as you can. And I kind of rolled my eyes at him because that sounded it sounded silly and impossible. But also what else was I going to do? I mean, I was at sort of a I don't know who I am point in life and that's a that's a really unsettled place to be. And especially cuz I had, you know, I had kids who were depending on me. I was, you know, kind of everything else in life was unsettled as well. So I was like, well, I okay, fine. I'll just do this thing. And and so I started reading and I kind of slogged my way through Matthew and it was hard, you know, I already knew the Sermon on the Mount. I already knew, I already knew it all. That was the problem. I kind of, or in my mind, I knew it all. And I got into Mark and kind of this first eight chapters of Mark were the same experience. 
And Mark 8 is sort of the turning point of the gospel where it's the first time that Jesus is confessed as Christ. It's halfway through the book. And then Mark 9, is he goes on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is a story I still don't totally understand. Um, and then he comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's a crowd waiting for him, including a father with a demon-possessed son who is asking for Jesus' help. And there's this amazing interaction, which I didn't think was amazing at the time, you know, because, again, I'd read this so many times. I'd never paid attention to it or had, it had never struck me. And Jesus comes down and basically says, you know, what do you need? The father says, can you can you cast this out of uh, of my son? And Jesus says, I can if you believe. And the father says, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus proceeds to heal the boy, cast the demon out, and and there's a lot of there's a lot else going on in that story, but but that that was became kind of a pivot point for me because that sentence I believe helped my unbelief became the thing that was a defining characteristic of Christianity for me from that point on in a way that I had I had never been free to to say help my unbelief unbelief felt like felt like sin it felt anathema it felt like there was no room for this. Everything had to be sort of theologically framed, well-argued, grounded. Saying, I don't know, was akin to being like, well, I don't know, I don't know Jesus. It wasn't just, I don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. And so that became almost like a paradigm for me in wrestling through questions of faith and doubt, where it was, it was, there were definitely things convictions that I, that I was growing in and that I have grown in to say, these are things that I believe that, that I, that I just know to be true by faith. And I realize that saying no by faith sounds a little bit like a contradiction in terms, but I think that's what it means to be a Christian because you think about Hebrews definition of it, you know, faith is the conviction of things not seen and the assurance of things hoped for. I think I got those backwards, but, um, so there's, there's this conviction in things that I know to be true by faith. And there's a ton of stuff that I am, I'm not sure about. Um, I don't know a tidy answer. Um, I don't, I can't give an explanation that puts somebody in an, in a more agnostic place at ease with the realities of, I don't know, the problem of evil or, uh, you know, these, these various mysterious or seemingly contradictory aspects of God. <clears throat> so all that to say, the the advice to to seek out a knowledge of Jesus that was fresh and new and different was was profound. And that verse, I believe, helped my unbelief, along with the way that Jesus responds to that father, were things that I've that I have that I have rested in since that time and have, you know, kind of grown in that. And I think I think that's where Christians kind of have to be ultimately is the, you can't be a Christian without convictions, nor can you be a healthy Christian with the idea that you must know it all, you do know it all, you you have all the answers, that doubt is, um, you know, doubt is not the roaring lion seeking to destroy us, it's just a product of being limited. And, and so, in some sense, we just kind of go, yeah, that's us. And... And so we seek the truth, and there's a lot of stuff we say we don't know about, and and we pray the prayer, help my unbelief, because one of our convictions ought to be that God 
hears us, answers us, and will will do what Jesus did in that story, which is to give the doubting person specifically what they need to grow in faith. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, I've always loved that line too, I believe, help my unbelief. I think it's one of the underappreciated aspects of the Bible, uh, of just how the Bible itself and and Jesus and, and moments when the Father is involved respond to doubt at different points. Obviously, Jesus on many, many pages of the Gospels. And then, you know, when Job is angry uh, and and crying out to God and, you know, God in kind of a forceful way, but also a very compelling and winsome and artistic way is like, where were you when I formed the foundations of the earth? Where were mm-hmm. you when I placed the stars in the heavens and those sorts of things? Um, and the Psalms, my goodness, the Psalms are like filled with doubt. Um, my favorite is probably Psalm 73, where Asaph says, it seemed to me a wearisome task when he was trying to understand things. It's <laughs> yeah. always been one of my favorite lines, and I think kind of sums up where I am right now. To some degree, it's like, oh, I've been wrestling with the truth for so long, I'm kind of exhausted by it. Um, I think the thing that I probably struggle with the most, you brought up Hebrews 11, and the way that faith is described in that chapter seems to me to be a very different faith that's demanded of us. Because when it's talking about the assurance of things hoped for in Hebrews 11, each of those characters were given a clear way to see that the Father, that God really did exist, and the thing that they did not see yet that they needed to trust and believe in was the quality of his word, the assurance of his promise, the promise he made to Abram uh, would actually become true. Whereas for us, we're not only being demanded to trust those promises, but we're being demanded to trust and believe and have faith that he exists in the first place. And so to me, there's a, a disconnect in the faith that's described in the Bible where people are interacting with Jesus' face face-to-face, seeing the things he did, and the faith that's demanded of us. And that disconnect, um, I would say, is a big reason why I wrestle with doubt to the degree I do. Yeah, I, I can see that. And I mean, just trying not to get muddied up in the specifics of, you know, engineering's <laughs> backgrounds and whatever. Obviously, that, yeah. was a, that was a much more profoundly theistic society. And so, I mean, especially because almost every example in Hebrews 11 is an Old Testament character, which mm-hmm. that, that brings a whole level of complexity to this as well, because they're hoping in a Christ who they don't know exists. You know, I mean, and, and it, it says that, you know, they like Moses hoped in Jesus Abraham hoped in Jesus, these kinds of things. And you're like, that's, that's unusual because Jesus came, whatever, two, three, 4,000 years later. Um, but th- how does, how does it strike you when Jesus talks about, um, you know, he says, I'm going to depart and I'm going to leave a helper with you. He's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, essentially offering the personal presence of God to everyone who believes henceforth. And how does that, how does that play into your, your struggles with the, like you said, we, they, they had to have faith to follow God. Essentially, we have to have Mm -hmm. faith both to that God exists and then to follow him. Um, 
and you, you kind of mentioned the evidences of God's existence or presence to them that we seem to be maybe lacking in as in as clear a way. Um, how does the the promise of the presence of the Holy Spirit as a I, I would say a real, if not tangible, um, evidence of the the existence of God? How does that play into your thinking on this? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the the concept of it, I'm I'm very open to. Um, you know, I do not I do not expect this kind of a God to reveal Himself on my terms, um, just because I think He should clearly reveal Himself in this undeniable way to everyone that He should do this, He should do that. You know, maybe there should be a different dynamic with suffering. Of course, doesn't mean He doesn't have incredibly good reasons to be doing things the way he is. I think any of those intellectual arguments against the existence of a good God are rooted in very, very false assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that said, you know, I alluded to, to the things Jesus says in, about the Holy Spirit in John, which one of them you just quoted, I'll send you the other helper, the other advocate, other counselor, or whatever you want to A bit like Titus kind of hesitation sometimes to push back. I, I think it's because um, I am not trying to spread my doubt or my disbelief. <laughs> right. And because, you know, as Barnabas, you talked about, I'm going to know a lot more as like a trained seminary grad and pastor. I'm going to know a lot more than most Christians I talk to. And I think it's a better way of life to have genuine belief in Jesus and in the Holy Spirit than it is not to. And I don't want to have a negative impact on on people who have that belief. So I hesitate to, to always be vocal and, and honest in response to these questions. But I think um, I just don't see enough evidence of the Holy Spirit. I, I don't know that I actually buy it. I think if if I did see that, I'm very willing to accept that package, that that's the way God would choose to reveal himself. That's the way Jesus would reveal himself to us. But as someone who's been a pastor in churches who has worked closely, not only with congregations, but, uh, you know, with leaders and, you know, obviously has pursued the Holy Spirit in my own life for a very long time. I think if I'm being honest with myself, if I try to separate myself from how much I have rooted in that and how much bias I have towards wanting Christianity to be true, because I invested my entire life into it, my career, everything, if I separate myself from that, I, I think I came to a point where I was like, I just, I don't think it's there. I, I'm not sure that I buy it. What does what does a lack of evidence for the Holy Spirit look like? I mean, and I realize asking about a yeah. lack of something usually looks like, I mean, a lack of something usually looks like nothing. But um, yeah. well, I guess, what do you mean by there's a lack of evidence? I just want to make sure I understand because I don't want to respond to something you're not saying. That would be that'd be unfair to you and the listener. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I think, uh, you know, certainly life change uh, in terms of, you know, you'll do greater things than these. Um, but also kind of revealing himself and pressing upon the truth of it all within you. Um, uh, I think, man, again, this is where <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to have a negative, uh, I'm not wanting to spread my disbelief. Um, 
I think when I've expected other people and myself, I'm not trying to do this from a judgmental perspective. Um, if I look closely at the lives of other people and myself, um, it seems as if the motivations that exist with non-Christians are the same motivations and to a similar proportion that are driving uh, Christians I've worked with both in congregations and in leadership. Um, and uh, I just don't see either the Holy Spirit revealing himself to me. Prayer has always been an incredibly dry experience. Um, and I don't see it having the impact that you would think it would or anywhere close to that based on the strong things Jesus specifically says about the impact the Spirit should have. I think, yeah, hearing what you're saying, I, those all sound strikingly like strikingly fair statements. More to me as a as an assessment of the spiritual um, dryness of the American church. Um, because I hear what you're saying and I, and I just sort of nod along and I'm like, yes, there's not enough evidence of life change. <laughs> the motivations are strikingly similar. And I think that has largely to do with the fact that the majority of American Christians are much more shaped by cultural influences than by the words of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm a hundred percent in agreement that when you look at the things that Jesus says to believers in terms of love your enemies, do good to those who curse you, um, take up your cross and follow me. It is better to be last than first. I mean, just you run down the line of sort of Jesus economy of, of the kingdom of God, his value system. It doesn't look anything like America and, and the American church looks a lot like America. Yeah. And that to me though, that is not an evidence of, that is not evidence against the Holy spirit as the, as the, the existence or the presence of the work of the Holy spirit. It's evidence that we can collectively suppress the work of the Holy Spirit by refusing to follow the words of Jesus. I mean, even even your statement about prayer being dry, I look at that and I don't think, boy, you must pray badly, because I think all of us <laughs> recognize sometimes prayer feels like shouting into a void or whispering into a void or journaling into a void or whatever your, you know, kind of your methodology or expression is. But I think I think that's that's more evidence because all of us listeners, the three of us can all kind of nod in agreement that, yeah, it feels like that sometimes or often. I think that's more of a an evidence that that we need the spirit, not that the spirit isn't there and not that he's holding out on us, but just that we, you know, our our nature as humans is sinful. And again, I don't know where you stand on, on on a doctrine that I'm sure you once either espoused or could articulate well, and I don't know where you are on that. I believe that people are sinful in nature and the Holy Spirit is the transformative new, the new life and new new person that the Bible describes. And so the struggles in prayer are kind of the tension between who I am as a sinner and who God has made me as a believer. And I don't, you know, I don't get it right, or I don't hear the things that the Spirit is saying because my ears are not, the ears of, you know, my soul are not sensitive to it. 
And I mean, on those lines, I have, I've had to make a conscious discipline to look for the work of the Holy Spirit, both in my own life and in the lives of others, because, because it's fainter than I wish it was. It's Mm. less bold and obvious. I'm also kind of terrified of it being bold and obvious because the Holy Spirit tends to do things like set aside Barnabas and Paul and send them to Asia. And I'm like, whoa, (laughs) that's, that's that's a big thing to do. Um, but I guess kind of wrapping up everything I'm saying is that I think I don't think you're wrong in saying that there's a lack of evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. But I think that's much more an indictment of how people submit to and follow Jesus than it is the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit itself. And I realize when you're arguing about an absence— it's very hard to kind of put your finger on on it, but I, I think there's also evidence from Scripture that that's that that is the case. There can be a suppression of the Holy Spirit. That that God, God rarely works against the wills of people. You know what I mean? Like he's not he's not subverting. He doesn't force he doesn't force his way into the lives of people. There's a kind of a a co-submission and God acting as opposed to, you know, God coming in and being like, well, I'm going to be the conquering king and just, he, you know, he's not on a crusade. If he was, I imagine he would have wiped out America as infidels a long time ago. <laughs> but if, I don't know if, that, if all that makes sense. But yeah, I think I resonate with the feeling of what you're saying, but I put my finger on a different cause. Yeah, I think um, I would say that's that's that makes a lot of sense when you're coming from the perspective of faith right that you would say that's evidence that we're just not rooted enough in the spirit you know one of the things that has always been very uh just provocative and compelling to me is is the fact that over the last 2000 years christianity has been the only religion where its kind of center has moved across the globe instead of like always staying in the Middle East. It's, you know, at different points, the center of Christianity has been in Europe. It's been in North America. Now it's probably more African and Asian. So when you talk about uh, Barnabas and Paul being sent to Asia, maybe that is exactly what we need. Um, you know, one of the things that's been very maybe we need Maybe we need, like, maybe we need people from, like, Brazil and South Korea sent to us. Like, maybe we're the recipients now, not the— totally. I, the, the American evangelical church feels strikingly to me right now similar to what I read about the Roman Catholic Church during the time of the Reformation in terms of cultural power structures, greed, corruption, the the welding together of um, kind of a mercenary mindset and using religion to further that. Um, that there's the only difference is we don't have a papal structure. But culturally speaking, it's really similar. The way that people are sort of culturally involved in it, but completely ignorant about what it is and what we, I mean, most people Mm -hmm. in America who call themselves Christians don't crack their Bibles, go to church very rarely. Like there's very little investment in the church itself, all of which leads me to believe that, yeah, it makes total sense why somebody would look at look at Christianity as we have presented it, we being American Christians, and say— I'm not sure I not sure I buy that because there's a billion inconsistencies, hypocrisies, and it just there isn't evidence that God is doing a lot 
when you take the sweeping view. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I actually take a lot of a, a bit of a different perspective on American Christians than I think uh, some other people do. Like I have a friend who has really wrestled with his faith, largely in part to so many evangelicals supporting Trump and that sort of a thing. Yeah. And I've always had the mindset that like, look, 90 percent of people who call themselves Christians like Jesus doesn't ask anyone to be a Christian or to wear a tag. He says, pick up your cross and follow me, be a disciple. Right. Yep. Um, and so I haven't worried myself too much. I don't hold it against the possibility of Christianity being true that 90% or whatever, I'm just saying a percentage of people who call themselves Christians in America aren't actually striving to be disciples. Uh, when I'm talking about what seems to me an inconsistency between what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit and what I see, I'm actually looking at people, including myself, who have strived very, very hard in a lot of ways to be disciples. And, um, you know, I'm certainly not saying, you know, because we're still sinful or because we still have faults, like I hold that against them. But I've seen, um, I think when the pressure is on, um, the same motivators that I see in the world tend to be the motivators in us. Yeah, I think <clears throat> that's an interesting way to couch it because, yeah, you do you bring it down to I mean, a little bit more of a spotlight level on people who who are invested followers of Christ. And yeah. as, as opposed to the the cultural, the cultural Christianity that is, you know, pretty ridiculous and, and common and <laughs> yeah, and pretty asinine. Um, but I think even in that case. I think I think what I said earlier still still holds true if I can if I can remember what I said exactly. But just the the idea of the motivators and those kinds of things being the the same. I would agree. I mean, I I am motivated by money. Um, well, I also am a follower of Christ, so that means I do have to conscientiously, and I think in the power of the Holy Spirit because of the work of the Spirit work very conscientiously to be a generous person and it doesn't come mm -hmm. naturally. I would much rather keep than give. Although again, what I would call an evidence of the Holy spirit, when I give, I feel a sense of freedom from almost a bondage, a bondage to, to greed, to like, having lots of things is nice, but it, it also feels like you kind of like Scrooge McDuck diving into his his uh, vault of coins kind of thing. You're like, I have all of this for no reason whatsoever, whereas yeah. to give is to bless. And so, I mean, that's an evidence, I think, in conflict, responding in anger, in selfishness, in aggression, in, you know, in all of the social media ways. Um, yeah, Christians are do that and we're prone to it. And that's not an evidence of the Holy Spirit. But also knowing the number of times that I am able to refrain from doing those things and recognize like that's a that's a check on my my temper or my ego because I really like to have the last word, the smartest word, the funniest word, you know, the one that makes somebody else just shrink in shame. Like that's a that's a visceral reaction of mine. Yeah. And when I don't do that, it's very quiet to the world when you don't do a wrong thing. But in evidence in looking in my own life, I go, that that's the Holy Spirit, because I know myself and I would wage war on this person until they were defeated or we are mutually destructed. That's how this would work. Mm. And so those kinds of things, 
it's very hard to just notice. It's hard to notice what people would be without the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's an evidence that I can see it clearly in my own life. And I know other people who attest to the same things, and I, I, I believe that that they're right, you know. But for the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, I too would be whatever. An egotistical jerk, in jail, a, you know, cheating on my spouse, just run down the list. And it's the Spirit that keeps them from those things. And so you're looking at kind of, it sounds like, you're looking for the kind of the outwardly visible manifestations of the spirit in people's lives, which is fair because we ought to have those too. But I think because of the kind of people that we are, a lot of the work of the Holy Spirit is keeping us from being as as bad as we would be otherwise. And so the outward manifestation is any worthwhile contribution to society, any healthy relationship, any expression of faith in Jesus, any of those things that are that are good in our lives. I mean, I, even in having this conversation with you, I would, I wouldn't be loath to say like, I see evidence that the spirit is working in your life because your response to doubts, uh, or to, to the Bible, to God is not antagonistic. You're not attacking. You're not, you're, you are listening. You even said, I don't want to spread my doubts. You said, I think that a, a, a profound faith in Jesus is a better way like those are things that I listen to and I go, I don't think you could think that way aside from the spirit quietly, silently doing something in your life. And, but those evidences are so, there's so much like a whisper. You kind of wonder if they were there and then they're gone, but they have had an effect on where you are, who you are, who I am. And so it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a two-sided thing where on the one hand, yes, we, we really, really ought to have more visible, profound, culture-shifting, relationship-changing evidences of the Holy Spirit. And on the other hand, all anybody who is in a position of life change, health, in, in any spiritual way, I think that is an evidence of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. One thing I want to do, I, I think that's that's a good response. One thing I want to do, uh, I'm I, I, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, I sound like kind of a typical atheist or agnostic where it's like, oh, well, what about the church? You know, damn it, the church. Right. Um, and I'm like, I think for me, it's different. And I haven't quite put my finger on what's different. And I think when I say those things about the church, it comes across as an indictment on people and an indictment on the church, but I actually don't intend it to be that way. Uh, one thing I do want to acknowledge, you know, when I said that, um, I think it's better for people to have faith than not. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think, you know, you brought up the example of money. It's not just a matter of me thinking this, that Christians actually give more than non-Christians, especially if they're actual disciples. Um, but stats actually bear that out. That is a factual thing. Christians give more money. They're more sacrificial with their money. Um, and so I do think there are a lot of positive impacts that it makes. I do think Christianity and faith does a great job at um, at least stirring a desire to be humble, <laughs> yeah. which I think is in incredibly, incredibly important, um, just not only in terms of our relationships with other people, but in terms of our own happiness. I think humility is can be a great driver of joy and happiness. But um, 
I don't intend it. So I don't intend all that to be an indictment on, on people or the church. I actually mean that more to be an indictment on God that if the Christian God exists, why on earth would you say such incredible things about the Holy Spirit? And of course, like so much of the Bible is building this force up to Acts 2, to Jesus and to Acts 2, when the Spirit comes down and people's lives are changed and they're doing life day by day, giving daily, all these things. And, you know, maybe I haven't spent enough time in Asia or Africa, and maybe the Spirit of God is stronger there. Maybe it's less consumeristic. There's a long history of Christianity being healthier when it's under some degree of persecution, when it's a minority, not a moral majority. But I'm just like, man, you're going to make those claims and then give us this? Like, this is our experience of you? This is our experience of the Holy Spirit doing these? You will do greater things than these, Jesus says. Yeah. Like, this is what we get. Um, there just seems to be an inconsistency that, for me, rings hollow. When I hear you say that, I the thing the, where my mind goes is, is more to the Old Testament, and the way that God lays out his covenant, you know, he said, you know, I will be with you. If you know, essentially, if you walk with me, I will bless you in these ways. Well, the people of Israel who are, you know, the precursor to the people of, they, they were the original people of God through Christ that then expands to the whole world. They didn't walk with God. They lost the blessings. God did withdraw his presence from them. Not not in a stop loving them, break his covenant way, but just sort of handed them over to their own devices. You see it in the book of Judges. They did what was right in their own mind, and then there was a repeated cycle of judgment. You see it in uh, through the books of Kings, especially with and then and then the exile. I I think we're just I, th I think we're a book of Judges kind of people. So it is. God did say those things, and He meant them, but I think it's a. It is based on the assumption that we will take up our cross and follow. Like, what would the Holy Spirit do in the life of the church if people were servants and were sacrificial? And, you know, the greatest way to love your friends is to lay down your life for them. Like, what if we did that? In both, in some places in the world, that means dying. In some places in the world, that means serving. It means giving sacrificially, giving your time, putting others' interests before your own, to use the words from Philippians. Um, I, I wouldn't—I don't think it's an indictment of God. I think God is ready to pour out the, the blessing of the Spirit in the way that he said, and we are the hindrance. We are the people of Israel who are doing what's right in our own mind— who are acting in our own strength, our own confidence, and can we, we've set aside our need for God. And, and I, think, I think when you bring it down to the granular individual level, that gets a little bit harder to, because I don't want to put it on one person and be like, if you have more faith, then God will. Because I don't think that's how God presents himself. I'm speaking to kind of the, the church as a whole, a collective dependence, a collective crying out, a collective need. You know, when the Holy Spirit came and acts, it was desperate, needy people in a minority group feeling threatened, gathered together in prayer. Well, almost none of that reflects where we are as a, as a religious group in, in the Western world, at least. Um, I would venture to guess that in other parts of the world, this whole conversation is invalid.
because of what because of the position of the mm. church yeah. there in in the Middle East, in the Far East, et cetera, where where the church is under persecution. I mean, the fact that the Chinese church has grown by tens of millions of people since Christianity was outlawed. I mean, it's there's there's evidence there that the Holy Spirit works in that context where people are in desperate need and have no cultural power. And we're the exact opposite. We have no desperate needs and we have the cultural power. And and I think we we no longer need God in our own minds. And again, that's a collective we, not a not a you we, not a me we, but a like the American church kind of thing. And so I I think we are very reflective of the people of Israel who turned away from God and they're still, we are still God's people just as the Israel was. God didn't abandon his covenant and I don't think he's abandoning his new Testament promises. Mm. I think we shut the door on his promises. Yeah. I think that opens up. Uh, I want to ask a question that, that maybe turns our discussion in a bit of a different direction, but first, um, uh, I do think that opens up a lot of issues with regards to first cause. Like if things are this way and we're this way, why did why is God allowing it to happen this way? Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems awfully, awfully strange. And, you know, there are th- theological responses that I've given for a decade to those questions. But um, I don't know that I've ever found those answers satisfying. Um, but I do want to... Um, you know, one thing as you're talking about us having the cultural influence, I think we've we've lost our cultural influence. Uh, when I say we, I mean Christianity. Yeah. I think like um, conservatives, specifically political conservatives, have the power politically, mm-hmm. but they wish they had the power culturally. Whereas progressives and liberals have the power culturally, wish they had the power uh, politically. Right. And I and I think that's like um, you know Christians. We've lost that influence culturally, and I think that's why we're kind of scrambling and grasping on to things that we shouldn't, like a lot of yeah. cultural Christians grasping on to Trump just because he approves of them and 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 doesn't dismiss them as, as a lot of the culture does. Well, we're, we, again, not you or me necessarily, but we as you know, the white conservative crowd are a good voter base. So yeah, that makes sense. I, I would draw a distinction between power and influence for sure. Like you said there, mm, I think, yeah. I think Christianity holds the power, like cultural Christianity holds the power in the United States does not hold the influence. I don't know that any one group does hold the influence, but it seems like society is much more influenced by what, you know, you said the liberal progressive. And I don't use those terms pejorative just as a category, just for listeners sake. Like I'm not siding with one or the other. This is just a a label to categorize. Um, Yeah. It seems like there's more influence that way culturally, but I was speaking, I was speaking more in terms of the, the power structure who holds kind of who holds the keys to the kingdom, so to speak? Well, kind of the direction I want to go with that, it, it, and I don't mean to like shift our conversation too much. You guys can feel free to shift it back, but it is an interesting conversation. You know, if I had the had a huge voice with you know like a million Twitter followers, and I had these books and a voice that kind of impacts culture, um, no matter my own belief. 
I would be trying to make sure the world is aware that there's a lot more to this Christianity thing than they think. I think as a culture, our big problem is we're too dismissive of other sides, and I think it would go a long way if Christians and non-Christians could do a little bit more affirmation of each other's worldviews and and understanding of that. But the the interesting thing is, uh, as Christianity is in decline of in some ways will we have like this Holy Spirit response? You know, you were kind of alluding to the fact that yeah. we're in this position that historically kind of quenches the Holy Spirit's work. Mm-hmm. So what will it look like in 20 years where, you know, when most likely Christianity won't have that much influence? Like, will it become a little bit more of a holier and a little bit more of a biblical thing than perhaps it is now? I over the last probably five years, just sort of with the, the the cultural and influence shifts in in America, more and more I've become I've come to the place of thinking that the best thing for the American church is for Christianity to lose all power. Mm, yeah, because I think so. Mark Sayers wrote a book called "The Disappearing Church." Titus, by the way, he'd be a great guest on your podcast. But um, all right, and and he talks about how. Christianity, how the church has always been at its healthiest when it's a creative cultural minority. It's forced to adapt. It's forced to learn how to express the beliefs and the convictions of Jesus to a culture from a place of kind of being on the bottom rung, not the top. And it loses itself, Mm. its identity, its meaningfulness, its connection to the spirit when it gains cultural power. And that, that that was a really helpful eye-opener for me. And I looked around and I, I, I think to use an old-fashioned biblical term, like this is going to be a separating of the sheep from the goats or the wheat from the chaff over the next couple mm. decades in America, which I think will be really hard because we don't like being persecuted or we don't like yeah. being marginalized. Also, what we call persecution in America right now is, is <laughs> pretty light. Um, yeah. But but I think it will absolutely crumble the faux structures of the church over time. They will become monuments to a past thing that have very little cultural meaning. And it will, and you will begin to see the churches that are dependent on Jesus in a meaningful way, where the work of this, they're open to the work of the Spirit, become, become much more significant in the lives of people, in, in the influence we have on, on neighborhoods and societies and cultures within the United States. But yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree that, that I think it's, I think there's going to be a, I think there's going to be an opening to the Holy spirit because of the closing of the doors of power to the church Mm. over the course of the next few decades in America or in the Western world. There's a, there's a guy named Aaron Wren. I think he's a sociologist or, or something like that. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, he wrote an article last year where he kind of put a lot of this in a way that has just been easy for me to remember, which is before the 1990s, being a Christian was a cultural positive. And then, then in the 90s and the 2000s, it was a cultural ne- neutral. And now it's become a cultural negative. You know, mm-hmm. like I've been going through this process of trying to figure out what um, my career is going to look like, and I've been doing job interviews and that sort of a thing. And I can tell you, it is interesting to see the way people respond to the fact that I was a minister. Um, it's just very uncomfortable for a lot of people, particularly, you know, for me, I'm in New York, like it's, uh, people, people don't know what to do with it. And I can very much 
see like how much things have shifted even just yeah. in the last 10 years. And it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. And I'm specifically just interested to see where it goes, because I think a lot of millennials are drawn to a progressive version of Christianity mm-hmm. where it's like, um, you know, the church I was a part of Redeemer in New York, um, you know, they're going to continue to hold to, to the Westminster Confession of Faith and PCA doctrine that women shouldn't be in pastoral positions of leadership. And, you know, Scripture doesn't approve of, of gay marriage. Uh, the latter of which I think is clear in Scripture, the former of which I'm not sure is as clear in Scripture. Um, but the I can see that millennials are just a lot of them are not willing to consider a church that holds to those things. But as soon as you start to drift away from what scripture is clear on towards uh, the things that you're more comfortable with and seem better to you, you enter into like this weird territory where it's like, well, how do you actually establish what's true? Where do you actually rooting things in besides just cultural influences and what you think? And, you know, studies show that, progressive churches, those people don't tithe as faithfully and those sorts of things. And I think specifically is the younger generations are first drawn to a progressive theology. And this isn't me diminishing progressive theology at all. It's something I wrestle with quite a bit. Um, It does just kind of naturally lend itself to like, well, you know, are you sure you're going to be a Christian long term if you're moving away from the authority of scripture? I'm just, I don't know where things are going to go. And as someone who is i've invested my life in this you know i'm very i'm very interested to see what happens yeah i think i think that i think that i mean progressive christianity is not a thing um you know it's Mm -hmm. like you said it's sort of a it's it's also sort of a spectrum in terms of where people fall on the what what aspects of traditional Orthodox Christianity do people still adhere to and which version or which aspects are they uncomfortable with or abandoning or whatever the word is. Um, I think again, kind of circling back around to the Holy spirit in this conversation. um, I think that the Holy spirit will, will draw people to the words of scripture consistently and, and until Jesus comes back. I mean, I think that's just going to be the case. So culturally, we no longer hold scripture to be a book of authority. It's yeah. sort of a, you know, e- even conservative Christians don't because much of conservative Christianity is as biblically inconsistent as I would say aspects mm. of progressive Christianity are. Mm. It's just, yeah, you, you can't be, you can't be white supremacist and biblically faithful. That's that's sinful. That's, that's evil. <laughs> um, and but a lot of conservative Christianity leans. It's very comfortable with racial division, if not outright white supremacy, for example. Yeah. Um, but the more people are drawn to a love of Scripture and adherence to it, those things I think will sift themselves out. So people who are progressives now might be drawn more towards what does the Bible command of me? What is it? What does it mean for me? And others are going to go the route of, I define my own truth. I'm not comfortable with that. I'm cherry picking this, those kinds of things. It's going to do the same thing to conservatives, except 
walk some sort of a middle road, probably where they're taking shots from both sides. But I mean, that's a, that's, that's akin to what Jesus represented. He really offended the conservative political crowd. He really challenged the morally bankrupt crowd. He really loved the marginalized crowd, but also told them you can't keep being immoral. You can't keep being, you can't keep living in sin as a prostitute mm-hmm. or as a, you know, whatever, but he loved them. And I, I look at that and I go, I think, I think that, that will, the cream will rise to the top as people do that. That's, I mean, that is the call for <clears throat> us all. And it's a really hard thing to do because, because <clears throat> we all fail often, but yeah. But I think that I think that over I mean, again, just sort of looking at the to project forward, I think that will become clearer and clearer in terms of kind of who what are the churches, who are the people, who are the leaders who are reflecting Jesus in that way, where that the the con you know, the angry conservatives really aren't comfortable with them. The aggressive progressives really aren't comfortable with them. They're somewhere in the middle. I feel like offending people on both sides is, is a safe place to be as long as you're doing it in love, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, as far as which church is going to reveal itself as, as really spirit-based, I think it's going to be the Lutheran church. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's going like, to be huh, this specific t- denomination. Tell, tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> one, no, actually, there's this one church just outside of Houston, this one congregation. They're they're going to be the Christians who do this. Okay. No. It's interesting <laughs> to bring up denominations because I think even yeah. those structures are going to be kind of less and less yeah. meaningful over time because those are – there's there has been a lot of merit and validity in them historically, but also a lot of division. A lot of like a lot of the reason they started is because they didn't like what other people were doing, and so there's a separatism. I think denominations will kind of lose lose merit but again. Going back to the power, like right now, some of them have power, but they're lack they're losing influence. At some point, they're going to lose both. Well, I think as that happens, you're going to see a lot more churches become progressive because I know of quite a few church leaders who are going more progressive theologically, but they're a part of denominations and feel it's just difficult to completely exit out of a denomination and they're not quite willing to take that dramatic of a step. Yeah. Yeah, we're at a minute and 14 seconds. This is like the Joe Rogan podcast. <laughs> you got to for another half? Make it a two-parter. <laughs> yeah. We're just no, getting started, right? Let me let me grab a Red Bull. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Start screaming. <laughs> like, oh, sorry, one? Barnabas. I, I haven't attacked you yet. You, you know, yeah, I haven't. True. I haven't called you by names, but we'll we'll get to that shortly. I promise. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. I'm like three drinks. I know it's only seven a.m., but I'm like three drinks away from yelling at you. So uh, <laughs> we'll give us a minute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. As we kind of wrap up here, I wanted to ask one last question. So I listened to your audiobook, Barnabas. Um, Help my unbelief. And one thing I noticed is you didn't get into any sort of apologetic arguments for Christianity. Um, and so I'm curious, is that because as someone who's more in the reform camp, you adhere to presuppositional apologetics or because you don't really feel like apologetics has a lot of value or maybe it's just not your calling? It's So out of the three options you just listed, it's much more the latter than the former. Um I am not equipped to to give in-depth apologetic answers to big questions. However, um, I also 
a lot of that has to do with the fact that, I mean, this for the last whatever hour, the majority of the conversation has centered around the Holy Spirit doing or not doing, being present or not being present. That is the hinge point for me on faith and belief versus doubt and unbelief. It is mm-hmm. what what is the Holy Spirit doing to open someone's eyes to God? Um, I think apolog- <clears throat> apologetics can be a means to that. Um, Christians are called to be reasonable people. We're supposed to present our faith in a reasonable manner, and apologetics are part of that. Um, I I am rarely moved by apologetic arguments. I find them like I'm just not. They, they don't move me to a place of greater faith in God. They are they're useful, and I think that different people respond to them in very different ways. Some people are. Uh, they probably resonate more with a certain type of intellect, a certain type of mental processing. But I, I come from a place where I've stared down the barrel of a bunch of stuff I know to be true, and I just don't give a crap. Like I just, if I look at this and I go, yeah, all of that looks right. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me right now. That's that's why I lean more heavily into what is the Holy Spirit doing to move a heart towards believing, which to somebody who doesn't believe sounds a lot like nonsense. I recognize this. When you start talking about this, it sounds it sounds like magic. It sounds like wizardry. It's like a it, there, there's some there's some craziness to it, which I'm generally comfortable with because because the Bible tells us that's the case as well. It's like, yeah, this sounds like nonsense to people who don't see it yet. Um but yeah, I don't, I don't dislike apologetics. I just don't think that they hold the first and foremost place in leading people to faith. Yeah. And I yeah, hope I didn't I, just like crap all over an apologetics podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can, 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 can I just add, you know, I, uh, in my most recent role as a pastor, I was, uh, specifically in charge with evangelism, <laughs> ironically, given where I am now. Um, <clears throat> and in the environment I was in, and I think this is true for Christians as a whole, we talk a lot about seekers and skeptics. Mm-hmm. And my point, you know, just piggybacking off what you just said, Barnabas, was like, we're talking so much about seekers and skeptics, but how big of a population actually is that? 99% of non-believers in our country have to just be apathetic. Yeah. And like, how do we get away from the seekers and skeptics mindset, which we, we need to have ministries for them. I'm saying we as Christians, but... But what are we doing for the apathetic? Like, how do we stir an interest in Christianity that isn't there yet or yeah. at least is dormant? And I think that's just a massive task for the church is how do we actually pull those heartstrings? Yeah. yeah. And, and and I think so much of that is is I mean, people have there's there's a there's a million methods, but it is it is connecting people to their need, yeah. their need for I mean, I. Coming from, obviously coming from a place of faith, I would say need for a savior, need for wholeness, healing, restoration. And those things speak to profound identity and emotional and spiritual voids in people's life. I don't think apologetics tends to speak to that. I think it can move people to a place of um, acquiescing to those things or going, you know, maybe there's merit here. It's to me – most apologetics that I have heard laid out, especially things like for the existence of God, if it was a court of law, they would be called circumstantial evidence. And what you need is a confession. 
Um, you need, you need like, there's, there's something, there's something confessional that moves people to a final verdict on, on God, on the spirit, on belief. Um, but those evidences can move people to like, they, they do move the needle. They do matter. And I believe that God is real and does things that, that are verifiable or are, are evidentiary. Um, but I don't think that that's the, for me specifically, and I, I'm not even sure that for the church as a whole, that's the most beneficial place to start as a, as an argument to move people to belief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you guys have any final thoughts as we kind of wrap things up? Uh, no, not for me besides just, <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, like Barnabas, I, I, I agree with a, a a lot of what you said, um, and yeah, I think you know it's 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 interesting because I think for both of us, we really do look at the work of the Spirit of God as like the center point, and it's interesting that we have the same center, point and it kind of reveals two different things to us, at least. Yeah, I I would I would say I mean first I have I've really enjoyed the chance to have this conversation and um I love non-antagonistic interactions about faith where where there's a there's just a desire to know truth. I think that mm. for those who are struggling with faith, doubts, whatever I think that's a question we have to come back to all the time is are we are we challenging the authority of God? And that's where our doubts are coming from. So sort of a fist shaking, I don't, I don't, it's a rebellious stance, or is it a, I don't yet recognize what is true. I really want to know what is true. I think for people who are genuinely seeking truth, God responds. God will make himself known somehow, some way, if that pursuit is, is continued. And so, I mean, this conversation has been, I found it encouraging. Like it's, it's encouraging to me to, to talk through a whole array of different things in a place where we we are simply seeking what is true and what is right and what is good, um, and yeah, I think that's it. I've I've enjoyed it and and benefited from it. I hope listeners do. Yeah, yeah for sure. Thanks, guys. You can check out uh, Drew's podcast Hinge and Room for Doubt wherever you get your podcast. Barnabas, you have a podcast, The Happy Rant, also. I do. That I love. I love listening to. I'm not in the reform camp, but. You guys are just hilarious, so I love. Well, we love mostly <laughs> we mostly poke fun at the reform camp, so yeah. it's sort of a it's sort of a family making fun of family type of things. But we yeah we put our finger on as many weirdo things that the church does as we can, and then make jokes about them. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, go check it out. Check out his books on Amazon. And uh, thanks everyone for joining us. We will see you next time. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Proselytize or Apostatize. I hope it was helpful for you in your journey toward truth. One thing you can do to really help us out is leave a rating and review. It helps other people discover the show. This episode was edited by Christian Sconewald with music by Kyle Skriloff. All right, see you guys next time.